0: Welcome to The Old Front Line, with me, military historian Paul Reed. This is a regular podcast where we'll look at the history of the First World War and travel together across the battlefields, from Ypres to the Somme and beyond. So what's in this week's episode? Hi, and welcome back. Last week we went past 10,000 downloads and we're almost at 15,000 now. I can't thank you enough for all your support and your comments on Twitter, Facebook and the reviews you've left on Apple Podcasts. Please do continue to leave those reviews and press like as it all helps to give the podcast some exposure. This week we return to Flanders Fields and we're about to head off and take a journey up towards the Messines Ridge. So let's strap our boots on and head off out onto the battlefields. This week we're back in Flanders and we're in the southern sector of the old Ypres Salient. Now A lot of people often ask, what is a salient? What was the Ypres Salient? Well a salient is a curvature in the line and if you look at maps of that period you'll see how the front lines come down from the north along the Issa Canal and then follow the curvature of the high ground around Ypres, forming this arc, this salient in the line. And the salient itself, the true salient, was made up of 12 separate sectors, from Bosinger in the north to Hollebeke in the south. But many veterans who fought there referred to the whole battlefield as the Ypres salient or as the salient, And when you used to talk to veterans as I did back in the 80s and ask them where they fought, they'd often respond, rather than Ypres, it would be, I was in the salient. So it was a phrase for the men who fought there during the years of the Great War that brought back those memories of the low ground around the shattered city of Ypres, the crater zones of Passchendaele, the Christmas truce, the gas attack of 1915, advancing along the Menin Road, or storming the low slopes of the Messines Ridge. And it's that battlefield that we'll look at in this week's podcast, the Messines Ridge. We begin in the village of Wolvergum, a village just behind the British front line for most of the war, and we're standing outside the church In the graveyard in front of us we can see the occasional splash of white Portland stone showing that there are graves, British graves, amongst the civilian burials here. When British troops first took over this sector in 1914 and early 1915 they buried some of their dead in existing burial grounds, already consecrated ground like this. So the burials here date from that period there are men, for example from the Queen Victoria Rifles who were buried here during one of their early stints in the line opposite the Messines Ridge. But by 1918, there was nothing left of this village, although it remained behind the lines for most of the war. In April of 1918, during the Battle of the Lys, the Germans broke through in this sector, and this whole area was pulverised by shellfire. It became part of that red zone that I often talk about, the Zone Rouge, that area of total destruction that wiped out so many communities in northern France and Flanders. One of the characters that was here in the early period of the war, in 1914, was Bruce Bairns father of the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. He became known as a famous cartoonist of the period of the First World War, drawing the old Bill cartoons. And as part of his later fame, he wrote a book called Bullets and Billets. I'll put a picture of it up on the podcast website so you can see what it looks like and in that he describes what Wolvergan was like during the time that he was here. The village street is one long ruin. On either side of the road, all the houses are merely a collection of broken tiles and shattered bricks and framework. Huge shell holes puncture the street. The church was a large reddish-gray stone building, pretty old and surrounded by a graveyard. Shell holes everywhere, the old grey gravestones and slabs cracked and sticking about at odd angles. Not a soul about anywhere. Wolvergham lay there, empty, wrecked and deserted. It's funny how journeys around the Western Front can often connect you to places that you know. One year I was leading a ledger battlefield tour to the Somme. And we were coming through the village of Hebuturn, which I mentioned in last week's podcast. And as we passed the war memorial outside the church, I noticed a British car, with a gentleman holding a 1920s-style photo album, a large one in his hands, looking up at the church. Now as a battlefield guide, with 40-odd people behind you, you can't just pull the coach over, get out and ask some questions, even if you want to. So you have to carry on. And our next stop was up at Sayre. And standing outside the copses at Sear, telling them about the attack there on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the car I'd seen turned up, out got that gentleman and listened to the talk that I was giving. When I'd finished, he came up and said, I hope you didn't mind me butting in and listening along with the people that are in your group. I said, of course not, but as long as you don't mind me asking you what's in your photo album. He was rather astonished that I'd noticed it. And he went to the back of his Land Rover, pulled out the photo album... And it was one that had been prepared by his grandfather, who was a commanding officer of the 1st 6th Battalion, the Royal Warwickshire Regiment. He'd brought his own camera, quite a good one, not a little pocket camera, but a really good quality camera, across to the battlefields with him from the very beginning of the war. And he'd taken a whole series of photographs behind the lines, in the front line, even pictures taken from the parapet of front line trenches. But the ones that immediately jumped out at me were ones taken here in the village of Wolverham, which were his rest billets when they were out of the line in front of the Messines Ridge. And he'd taken some photographs of some whitewashed walls in some farm buildings. And on those whitewashed walls were cartoons drawn by Bruce Bairns' father. And the caption read, Cartoons drawn by an officer of our regiment earlier in the war, now famous. And here was Bairn's father's original tapestry. Not paper, which was in short supply, but whitewashed walls of farm buildings. Those pictures were probably unique because, as I mentioned earlier, this whole village was destroyed by shellfire in 1918 and any trace of Bairn's father's original artwork, those very early old bill drawings and paintings, disappeared with shellfire and crescendo in April of 1918. Leaving Wolvergum, we take the road out of the village. And as we look to our right, we see a valley and a cemetery, St. Quentin Cabaret Military Cemetery, which was the frontline burial site for many of the units that served in the sector where we're about to walk. The valley was also the location of gun battery sites, the Royal Field Artillery had their 18-pounder field guns dug in here, giving artillery, fire support to the units that were in the line beneath the Messines Ridge. And as part of this overall walk, we'll begin to look at the infrastructure, really, of the front line as it was in this area during the early years of the First World War. Following the road uphill, we come to two farm complexes left and right of the road. They are, in fact, north and south of this road, ...and were known as North and South Midland Farms on the trench maps. They got these names because the 46th North Midland Division... ...and the 48th South Midland Division served in this sector in 1915. And this road that you're on was the dividing line very often between their two divisional boundaries... ...the 46th to the North and the 48th to the South. So the farm names fitted well with both the physical locations of these divisions... And also the area of the midlands which they recruited in before the war now both of these divisions being territorials were recruited locally so these were men that had grown up together that lived in the same places and had joined these battalions before the war many of them being made up to full strength with the influx of volunteers in 1914. after the war formations like this often had very very strong old comrades associations And you see a connection there between the formation of these groups to remember the sacrifice and service of men and the publication of a battalion or divisional history. And there are quite a lot of battalion histories of the units that served in this sector in 1915. Through these we have an insight into what life in the front line in this area was like at that time. The trenches were often very, very close together. Some of these trenches had been inherited from the French, others were very early war trenches, formed in the final months of 1914, at the tail end of the First Battle of Ypres. They weren't always well-sighted, very often the enemy, the Germans, had the dominance, and in some cases they were very close together. In the area to your left, just beyond Wolverham, up towards the next section of the Messines Ridge, the front lines were as little as 50 yards apart. And this meant that it was impossible for both sides to shell those positions without accidentally dropping shells on their own men. So there was a lot of sniper activity here. And when we look at the burials in Wolverham Churchyard that we just came from, and in some of the smaller cemeteries in this area, very many of these men were shot by snipers in the front line. This being the first months of active service for many of these units, men were not really aware of some of the dangers, or how low a parapet was, or what advantage the Germans had over a certain position. So some men got unnecessarily sniped or killed under these circumstances. Both of these units spent a lot of their time here building up the infrastructure, working on the trenches, building dugouts, making the trenches more habitable for the men to uh, survive in, and also working on the wire in front of those trenches. And there was even an occasion when an officer... The 1st 5th North Staffordshire Regiment went out on a wiring party with his men under the cover of darkness, darkness protecting them from enemy observation. But then a storm suddenly built up, and a flash of lightning lit up the battlefield and illuminated him against the wire. The Germans immediately opened fire, and he was killed. So, these men in this sector, in those months of 1915 when they were first here, We're not fighting the big battles of the First World War. These were the day-to-day activities of trench warfare. And it's important in our understanding of the Great War to understand that not every soldier died in a big battle. Most men died just holding the line in quiet places like this. Just before South Midland Farm, we turn right and take a concrete track down the hill. A little bit further it crosses over a little stream or or a beak and we'll stop here and turn to our left and look across this sector of the battlefield. In the distance we'll see the rising slopes of the Messines Ridge atop which is the village of Messines itself which gives this ridge its name. It's got a very distinctive church spire, Messines and I'll put a photograph of it up on the podcast website www.oldfrontline.co.uk Standing here looking across this grounds, and going back to the point of looking at the infrastructure of the front line in this walk, we are looking at the area where the front line was located. But the front line wasn't just one trench, it was a series of trenches, normally three lines of trenches. A front line, a support line and a reserve line and connecting those up were communication trenches that enabled men to move from one system of trenches to another. In certain areas of the trenches, there would be dugouts for officers, for ordinary soldiers, for headquarters, for the signal sections, uh, for stretcher bearers. So it was a complex area of battlefield where the trenches were located. It wasn't just a simple line of trenches. It was a whole system of different constructions, ...that grew and grew as the war moved on and as the war changed. Machine gun positions were built, trench mortar bays. Men had to go to the toilet, so latrines had to be built. A latrine sap enabling men to go to the toilet safely without being killed by the enemy in the process. So when we look at a trench map of this area, we see all these wiggly lines of where the trenches were... ...and each had their own purpose... To enable a soldier to get to an area of the battlefield, to hold a position on the battlefield, or to utilise that position for a specific purpose, for certain types of weapons, for his own task, whether they be medical or otherwise. And I think this gives us an insight into the complexity, really, of the First World War. That we didn't just stand still for four years and let the whole thing happen around us. We reacted to the conditions on the ground. As new types of weapons came in, as new types of gas came in, and as new types of warfare were developed, the positions on the ground changed along with those. So standing here, we can see right up to the area just below the ridge, and that's where the British front line was. The Germans were on the slopes of the ridge itself, holding the town of Messines. The valley stretching back from beneath the ridge to where we're standing now was the area where those three... Lines of trenches were located, the front line, the support line and the reserve line, where the communication trenches ran and where all the infrastructure of the battlefield was located. The farms we can see beneath us is actually one big farm, ration farm, more of that later on. This was the area immediately behind the trench system itself. So often battalion headquarters would be located here. This is where the rations came to, that's how it got its name. And then to the right of that, back towards Wolverham, is where the artillery was located, you remember, in that valley. The field guns firing in support. And then beyond that, we can see villages in the distance, which were the nearest villages, places like Nuvi-Glees and Dranutri, where men were billeted when they were out of the line here. So looking at this area of battlefield, and from this vantage point, we can see how a battlefield functioned in those early months and years of the First World War. Men out on rest in a village would move up through Wolverham, go into the trench system near Russian Farm, hold these trenches for a number of days, split the battalion up between those three lines of trenches, the front line, support line and the reserve line, rotate the companies within the battalion. There are four companies in an infantry battalion, normally A, B, C and D. So that meant that you as a, an individual soldier would not actually spend the whole of your battalion's time in the forward battle area, in the very front line. Your company would spend a few days in the front line, then move back to the support line, and then move back after another few days to the reserve line, and then go out to a village close by, before you started the whole process all over again. And although we did rotate units up and down the western front far more than, for example, the the German army did, What it did mean in places like this is that units would spend often several months in the front line area, holding it, being relieved, going back into the front line, um, so that the cemeteries today, they act as beacons to all this because they give us the chronology, really, of these units coming in and out of the line. So when we look at the cemeteries in this area, we see graves from those two Midland Territorial Divisions, then the Canadians take over after the Second Battle of Ypres. They move units from the area northeast of Ypres down here to this quiet sector for a rest. Then the 50th Northumbrian Division, another territorial unit made up of men from the northeast. My old pal, veteran uh, Jack Dorgan MM, was here with the 7th Northumberland Fusiliers at that time. They then take over this sector. And then in the lead up to the Battle of the Somme, they're holding the line here after the initial attack on the Somme in 1916 shattered units from the fighting there are moved up including the Ulster Division Uh, and again the cemeteries reflect all this so when we come to visit battlefields today and we look at the war cemeteries they're not just there as chapels of remembrance focusing on the men that are buried there and remembering their individual stories they're also telling us really what happened in these places and they're important parts of our understanding of how a battlefield developed and what happened on it Coming downhill, we move into the area where the modern farm complex is located. And we have to respect the fact that this is a working farm. The battlefields don't exist in isolation, and it's important that the people who live here continue to go about their business, about their lives. It's exactly what the men who were buried in these cemeteries and on these battlefields fought for. And we'll turn off down a little path to our rights that will take us into Russian farm La Ploudeau Cemetery now this is a battlefield cemetery an original wartime cemetery started in January 1915 by the 2nd Battalion of the Manchester Regiment who during those months of 1915 became one of the battalions of the British Army that set a record perhaps not a record that I'd like to have set they had 85 consecutive days in the front line a staggering number of days holding a forward position And it took that battalion a long time to recover from those 85 consecutive days. And it was at this point the British Army began to realise, as the army of the British Expeditionary Force began to expand, more units were available, that you couldn't just put men in the front line and leave them there. A lot of people who visit the battlefields today, I think, do believe that a soldier went into a trench and he stayed in that trench until he was dead or wounded or the war was over. But the army realised you had to give men rest. And the whole infrastructure we've just been talking about, the rotation of men around the battlefield, and then their relief to villages to spend some time out of the line uh, for some days before going back up again, was all an important part of how the army functioned in the day-to-day activities along its hundred miles or so of the Western Front by 1916. So the cemetery started by the 2nd Manchesters is roughly in date order, and as we come in we're actually at the end of the burials. so the January 1918 burials are found here, and as we wander up the long straight rows we can see the chronology of what happened here. Now because these men did not die in a big battle, there are one or two from the Battle of Messines, the 7th of June 1917 in here, but the bulk of burials in here are men killed not in the big battles, killed in that. Trench warfare activity, all quiet on the Western Front, never quite quiet, just holding the line. Now one date that is noticeable as you move into the middle part of the cemetery, there's a plot of graves of men from the 24th Division, including burials from the 9th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment. Their dates of death are the 17th of June, 1916. Now this is not a well-known date for the First World War, but in this southern area of the battlefield, from Witsharter right down to here in front of Messines, you come across a lot of graves with this date on. Jack Dorgan, who I mentioned before in the 7th Northumberland Fusiliers, his battalion was one of those in the line when this incident happened on the 17th of June. So what did happen? It was a gas attack, a German gas attack, along this section of the Messines Ridge, using a new type of phosgene gas and the hooded PH helmets, the gas masks that the British soldiers had at this time, did not prove capable of protecting the men from this gas. So there was a large number of casualties. And again, the, the cemeteries acting like beacons on the battlefields to this very incident, you can travel around and find men killed in the front line area. A large number were evacuated with gas poisoning, and gradually they die of their wounds. So when you follow... The evacuation route of casualties at this time to where the cemeteries are located on the sites of casualty clearing stations uh, then you find even more graves connected to this location right back into baliola just across the border in france so while this was a static front and there were no big battles there could be considerable casualties as this date of the 17th of june 1916 proves and the farm that gives this cemetery its name can be seen from the rear walls of the cemetery, particularly close to the Cross of Sacrifice. It's an old moated farm, and part of the moat can still be seen. And it got its name Ration Farm, because this was the point that the rations were delivered to, before they were then distributed to the men in the forward area of the battlefield. So they'd arrive here under the cover of darkness, and then carrying parties would take them through the communication trenches to the reserve, and then the support, and then the front line, to be handed over to the men there, to be distributed amongst the men so they could have their meals. So Russian Farm was also a battalion headquarters, and one of those who was on duty here at the uh, farm was the Padre, the chaplain of the units that were in the line. In the summer of 1915, the 14th Battalion Canadian Infantry, the Royal Montreal Regiment, were in this part of the battlefield, and their chaplain was Canon Frederick Scott, He wrote a fantastic memoir of the First World War The Great War as I Saw It and he recounts an incident here when a German aircraft got shot down and crashed very close to this farm. The Royal Montreal Regiment had just fought in the Second Battle of Ypres and lost one of their machine guns during that fighting being captured by the Germans. It was a Colt machine gun which was supplied to many of the Canadian units of the original Canadian Expeditionary Force. When the aircraft crashed here One of the crew was dead, and the other was very badly wounded. So the men of the Royal Montreal Regiment, supervised by Canon Scotts, began to evacuate the wounded airman from his aircraft. One of them suddenly noticed that the machine gun in the Coppola, rather than the usual type of German machine gun encountered on these aircraft, was in fact a Canadian Colt gun. And not just any Colt gun. When they looked at the serial number, it was the exact Colt gun that the Royal Montreal Regiment had lost during the Second Battle of Ypres, captured by the Germans, equipped in this aircraft, and duly delivered back to the battalion when the aircraft crashed here a few months later. An incredible story. I wonder if any of our Canadian listeners to the Old Front Line can tell me if that machine gun still survives, perhaps in the Regimental Museum of the Royal Montreal Regiment. Do let me know using the hashtag Old Frontline. Leaving the cemetery by the grass path, we turn right and go through the farm complex. The original name for this farm was La Plou Douve. It's mentioned in both the names of the cemeteries that are here, the one we've just seen, Russian Farm, and the one that we're about to see, which is the La Plou Deuve Cemetery. The Duv was a river that runs through this valley and cuts through the area where this farm is. There was a Plou Deuve farm and a Petit Douve farm, and we'll see both of them during the course of this walk. We come up to the cemetery and like the previous one of a couple of hundred burials this is even smaller the men that are buried here again reflect the units that served here so there are south midland troops from the earlier period then canadians then men from the ulster division and the other units that passed through this sector among the burials here is robert lancelot cuthbert a 47 year old trooper in the king edwards horse this was a cavalry regiment attached to the canadian division that was here In the summer of 1915. Cuthbert was a Scotsman by birth and was an accountant and had been working in New York. He was in fact president of the New York Yacht Club and when the war broke out he joined the King Edward's horse and he came across to fight. The regiment that he served in had a large number of American citizens serving in it and the Canadian Expeditionary Force also had many American volunteers and some of those are also buried in this cemetery So it is a cemetery that incredibly, in this tiny corner of Flanders, has a connection to the United States of America. As we leave the cemetery, we come onto a long, tree-lined avenue that takes us gradually uphill. For me, this is one of the most evocative parts of not just the Messines battlefield, but of the whole Eat battlefield. I love walking this tree-lined avenue, often alive with birdsong. During the war it could be seen from the Messines Ridge, so it wasn't much used except at night. But these tree-lined avenues, once so common in France and Flanders, now are getting rarer and rarer. And it's along these avenues that you can imagine in your mind's eye the troops of the Great War marching and singing those familiar songs. And as we walk up it, I think of them. I think of the battalions that pass through here and have now passed from the sight of men as that generation has faded from history. It leads us onto the crests of the next ridge, an area known to the British as Hill 63. These number hills get their names because the number is the number of metres above sea level that the hill was. And we walk along the fringe of its contours a little while until we take another track to the left that leads us back downhill, back down into the Doove Valley. After a little while it crosses over that Doove River there's a little bridge, and here we stop, and we look to our right, up towards another farm complex. We've seen the La Plou-Doux Farm, and this is the petit Farm. The petit Farm is located on rising slopes on the Messines Ridge. It sits in a slight promontory in the German lines, which meant the heavily reinforced buildings in which the German defenders sat could fire their machine guns straight down the middle of no-man's land in two different directions. There was a full-scale battalion trench raid by the 7th Canadian Infantry Battalion here in November 1915, one of the first of its type, really beginning a new type of trench raiding of the enemy lines from that period of the war. But in 1916, plans were being made for the Battle of Messines, which eventually wouldn't happen until the following year. The Messines Ridge had been captured by the Germans in the First Battle of Ypres in 1914, and there had been an attempt in December of that year to try and retake one section of it near wicharter a full-frontal infantry assault on the enemy lines, which had resulted in just nothing but casualties. So it was realised that to try and retake this ridge with traditional, conventional methods would be pretty much impossible. Eventually an idea was put forward that using the tunnelling companies of the Royal Engineers, the men who'd worked underground beneath the Western Front blowing up German positions, but employing them on a larger scale, a massive scale, they could tunnel underneath the ridge at key points and blow the German positions, enabling the infantry to advance up and across the ridge, supported by their artillery, and take this high ground. Because the battles in Flanders throughout the First World War really was a battle for the possession and repossession of so-called high ground like this. So in 1916 when the plans for machines were being made the La Petite du Farm was one of those that was looked at and it was decided that the tunnellers would dig underneath this position and blow it with a 35 tonne charge. The 171st Tunnelling Company were very active here in that period but of course they were not acting alone, the Germans were also tunnelling on this part of the Messines Ridge and in August of 1916 it was discovered that the Germans were very close to our mine workings. A camouflage charge was blown which had hoped to put their efforts to try and break into our system to an end but eventually the Germans blew a 6,000 pound charge which destroyed most of our tunnels. The charge itself, the 35 tonnes of Ammonol explosive, was already in place and it was now impossible to get to it, and the mining galleries were abandoned and flooded by tapping in the Duve River. So this brought not only the British tunnelling in this area to an end, it pretty much brought the German tunnelling in this area to an end as well, and it meant that the farm could not be destroyed by a mine when it came to the assault of Messines in 1917. And given that the tunnellers could not recover this mine or get access to it, What it also means is the charge is still there. Those 35 tonnes of explosive are still underneath this farm. And yet again, this is one of the legacies of the Great War. The war is never really over here. And the remnants of it, whether it be the shells or the grenades or the gas that's found in the fields every year, the bodies that are recovered, or huge mine charges like this, and it's not unique, there are other parts of the Western Front where unexploded mines from the First World War are still located, that legacy of the war continues. And will continue with our journey too. We'll stay on this track until it meets a minor road, and here turn right, past some farm buildings, one of which, when you look on the trench maps, was known as Stinking Farm. It's often still quite an appropriate name even today. And going past this farm, we come to a little bridge over another stream, another one of these beaks. And here we'll stop, because we're pretty much on the British front line from the end of 1914 up until the 7th of June 1917, when the New Zealanders attacked from here straight up the slopes ahead of you. And when you stand here and look up, you can see the dominance of the Messines Ridge here. These low ridges are only tens of metres above sea level but yet they give enough of a rise for a defender, for an enemy, in this case the Germans, to have an advantage on a battlefield. And the Germans have that advantage here for most of the war. And if we turn around and look back, we're looking back over the ground which we've walked, back over the area where the infrastructure of the battlefield that was spoken about during this walk was located. We're on the front line, and then behind us, was the support line and then the reserve line and then the communication trenches linking them all up. There's Russian farm we can see in the distance where the grub was brought up. Beyond that, the valley with the gun sites and Wolvergum, and then the villages in the far distance, which are the places where soldiers went to for rest before they started their period in the front line all over again. The rotation, the attrition the day-to-day activities of the Western Front. This static war was the common factor here for most of those four years of the First World War in Flanders, permeated by the big battles. And when we turn round again and look back up those slopes, we're looking at the ground in which the New Zealand Division made their assault on the morning of the 7th of June 1917, unassisted by a large mine, depending on their artillery, depending on the ability of their plan to overcome the German defences. And we can see the New Zealand Division Memorial from here, in the New Zealand Memorial Park, just in front of which are some bunkers that were close to the German front line. It seems impossible that men could cross this open ground and take those positions. But by 1917, this was how the war had moved on. The army, the aspects of the army, infantry, artillery the Royal Flying Corps in the air above, were all working together. Messines was in many ways a modern battle, using some of the old ways and encountering some of the old problems, but it was a successful operation which took the Messines Ridge in a single day. And the last part of our walk will take us up the winding road to the New Zealand Memorial, where we'll pay our respects to the men, the Kiwis of the New Zealand Expeditionary Force, the New Zealand Division, who took this ground in June of 1917. And if we walk into the park, to where the bunkers are located, there's a little observation area with an information panel. And here we have the German perspective looking back down the ridge, seeing how the Germans dominated this ground from their perspective. On clear days, you can see right across the border to Balliol, to Armentieres, Armentiers, home of the famous Mademoiselle from Armentiers, and even beyond that to the slag heaps of the Lewes battlefield and Vimy Ridge. So again, it reiterates this importance of ground, of high ground like this, on any battlefield, but especially here in, in Flanders Fields. It's that part of the podcast where we look at objects connected to the Great War. And I've got in front of me a pile of bystander magazines, fragments from France. And these are the collected cartoons of Bruce Bairn's father. So it ties in nicely with the walk that we did in this week's podcast. Bairn's father, you recall, spent a lot of his time at Wolvergum and painted some of his cartoons and drawings on the walls of the farm buildings there in that village. Ben's father was born in India and had a bit of a chequered career before the First World War with attempts to go into the military, work as an artist and on the outbreak of war in 1914 he was a reservist and joined the Royal Warwickshire Regiment posted to their 1st Battalion in France in late November of 1914. When he got there much of the fighting was over the battalion had been involved in battles from Le Cateau to the 1st Battle of Ypres it was a battalion full of regular soldiers which he had a great admiration for and he depicted them and their laconic humour in his cartoons and once they were published by the bystander magazine they became an international hit. These collections of fragments from France, his cartoons were published and sold widely, there were even picture postcards of them which the troops liked to buy There's an interesting aside here in that the Germans captured a British soldier in 1916 and he had some Ben's father cartoons on postcard in his pockets. The Germans were always keen to have an insight into what the British state of morale was so they examined these cards and it was a cartoon depicting two soldiers in front of a shattered wall with a big shell hole through it. Ben's father often liked to play off the characters in his cartoons with the new, inexperienced soldiers asking daft questions of the old hands and in this cartoon the new arrival asks what made that hole and the reply comes back from the old soldier mice now when the germans looked at this they published it actually in their contemporary newspapers and magazines and they used it as an example of how stupid the british were for treating war as a joke but in the end the way they published it actually said more about them because in the caption underneath it translated what the cartoon said, and they added a note. Note. Mice did not cause this hole. I think that ended up saying more about their sense of humour than anything else. Some of the impacts of these Bairnsfather cartoons have probably been lost over the centuries since they were published, but there are many poignant moments in them when he reflects on the loss of comrades and the men he'd served with in the trenches. There are a great insight, I think, into the men of that period, and they deserve to be more widely known. Major and Mrs Holtz republished some of the cartoons in a paperback some years ago, which is not too difficult to get hold of. The originals now are a little bit costly, and postcards of Ben's father's cartoons often turn up on places like eBay. But they're great little connections to the men of that early period of the war, And indeed, not just that period of the war, because Ben's father went on to become an intelligence officer and works on behalf of the War Department, creating these cartoons for for good morale, as they depict different aspects of the conflict, including the arrival of the Americans in 1917. Ben's father made some money out of this, but not much, and eventually he died in the 1950s, almost penniless. A sad end to a great man and a fantastic talent. Within these Fragments from France magazines are a lot of contemporary adverts for products that are on sale, officers' trench coats and things like that. And one of these proved useful in 2012 when the archaeologist Simon Verdigum was working around Messines on a massive dig. He found a swan fountain pen, and there's a great advert for them in the bystander in the Fragments from France magazines, which I was able to take to him and, and show him when he was doing that dig. So they have their usefulness in all sorts of different ways, these objects and artefacts connected with the First World War. And as usual, I put photographs of these objects up on the Old Frontline podcast website, that's www.oldfrontline.co.uk, and also on my Twitter feed. And I'll put some pictures of Ben's father in there so you can see what he looks like. A great photograph of him in his trench gear, standing in no man's land on Christmas Day in 1914, because he took part in the Christmas truce. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Frontline with me, military historian Paul Reed. I hope you found this week's content of interest. Do take time to subscribe to the podcast. Follow me on Twitter at somcore, and tell us what you think using the hashtag Old Frontline. Until next week when our paths cross again on the battlefields of the Great War.